This old Jim Crowism did bad luck to me and you. They built communities, and in many ways, they lived parallel lives to those of the white community. You know, they did not depend on the guidance of whites. That's Dr. Jody Allen, professor of history at the College of William and Mary. She knows legal segregation in Virginia was a brutal and unjust practice. Her own family lived through it. But she's also dedicated to telling the story of how African-Americans managed to find dignity and self-determination in the midst of Jim Crow. They built homes, they built schools, they educated their children. Um, so they, they thrived. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today we're bringing you stories of what Professor Allen calls roses in December, the lives that bloomed even under the harsh conditions of the segregated South. Later in the show, pioneering African-American opera singer Camilla Williams, who went from segregated Danville, Virginia, to the New York stage. But first, the story of how deep conversations with black leaders transformed one white Virginian from apathetic to activist. Historian Jennifer Ritterhouse of George Mason University shares the story of how Patty Boyle in the 1950s joined the fight against segregation. What was her childhood like? I understand she grew up on a former plantation. She did. She grew up on a farm outside of Charlottesville. She was born in 1906, and there are African-Americans who are both working on the farm and um, working as servants in the household. And her experiences to, you know, romp and play on the farm, have, you know, friendly relations with these people uh, who she sees as, as beloved adults until she hits age 12 and her parents uh, particularly her mother, very rigidly say, okay, you're a big girl now. You can't be overly familiar with black people. You have to act the role of an adult white woman and maintain social distance. So she's having to then maintain social distance with people who have been her caregivers and, and very important emotional mainstays in her childhood. Does she describe that she herself felt pretty oblivious to African-Americans or superior? She, she did feel superior. She thought that she actually understood what they thought and that they understood her. She describes it as if, you know, she and, you know, good Negroes would be a term she might have used, were all sort of the, part of the same club where, you know, they know that they have to abide by these rules of segregation, but really in their hearts, they're all good friends and everybody's getting along. And, um, you know, because she did believe in a, an inherent superiority and, and inferiority along race lines, she thought that, that black people accepted all of this and were happy that nice white people were nice to them. And I think, you know, it just, it does end up helping us to understand how people can be so blind. What was the turning point for her? When did she start to question her own beliefs? She was reaching a point in her life in her late 40s in 1950 when her husband, who's a professor at, at the University of Virginia, comes home and tells her that the first black student is about to be admitted to the university. So her first response was to ask around among her white friends, oh, how do you feel about this? Apparently, she says it was the, you know, his, his coming admission was the topic of all private conversation and a <laughs> studiously avoided subject for all public gatherings. 
But she's asking around, hearing that, you know, a lot of the people she knows think it's a good thing. And so she writes to Gregory Swanson and says, you know, I just want to reach out to you to let you know that there are a lot of us white people here at the University of Virginia who, who are welcoming to you. And he's, he's very moved by this letter, and it opens a, a correspondence and then a, a face-to-face communication between them once he arrives in Charlottesville. But then that communication very quickly goes sour. When he says, oh, I'm looking forward to being friends, she says, well, I didn't really mean that we were going to have social equality between us. So he's absolutely offended by her at this point. Oh, totally offended, and she just doesn't understand what she's done wrong. She reached out to the editor of the Black newspaper in Charlottesville. Somebody she didn't even know. So when she first found out that Gregory Swanson was going to be living in Charlottesville, she's thinking, well, you know, I'm a person of goodwill. Maybe I can help him find a place to live. She finds out that he's already found a place to live through this man named T.J. Sellers, who's the editor of the Black newspaper, the Charlottesville Tribune. And she actually says this is the first time in her life that she has ever addressed a black man as Mr., in conversation when she calls him on the phone. So she calls Mr. Sellers. Maybe he'd be willing to look over this draft article she's written that she's calling We Want a Negro at the UVA. So she asks Sellers to to read it over, give her a brutally frank critique, and so he does. Was it brutal? It was brutal. I mean, if you you look at, at what she wrote, she says, in paragraph one, I had referred to slavery, a tactless habit of white Southerners with whom the mere sight of a Negro seemed to conjure up nostalgic recollections of those good old days. I had also pridefully admitted that nobody on earth could accuse me of being a Yankee, uh, thus revealing I felt no shame for the South's far-reaching continued crimes against her Negro citizens. Uh, She says that she had clearly implied that Swanson, perhaps, you know, almost as a token, is welcome at the University of Virginia, but other African Americans are not that she had tried to whitewash the university by depicting the university as open-minded, open-hearted. It was only Virginia law that kept them from integrating. And then she quotes Sellers, his final statement. He apparently closed his letter saying, there is a new Negro in our midst who is insisting that America wake up and recognize the fact that he is a man like other men. He is entirely out of sympathy with the gross paternalism of the master class turned liberal. What a progressive rebuttal to her. Oh, T.J. Sellers is amazing. He gives her this searing critique. She says she has to, you know, sort of stand leaning back against the living room wall to catch her breath even after reading it. She ends up putting herself to bed because she's so upset. But then, you know, really to her credit, Boyle seeks out Sellers again, starts meeting with him regularly. They have these conversations almost weekly in his office that she ends up referring to as the T.J. Sellers course for backward Southern whites. <laughs> and a lot of her autobiography is, is outlining the lessons that T.J. Sellers taught her. As she was advocating for public desegregation, did she desegregate her own life? She tried. Her relationships with other whites in Charlottesville became strained as she became a very public advocate for integration. Uh, So she found herself less comfortable in the white community. Meanwhile, she did develop friendships among African Americans, but those weren't always the easiest uh, relationships to develop either because they were, you know, so unfamiliar and there were so many pitfalls of of behavior. So she, you know, she had to... um, 
face some some real challenges on the interpersonal level herself. She took a stand in a very visible way. So in uh, 1955, as Virginia is starting to figure out what it's going to do in relation to the Brown decision and you know how are schools how and when are schools going to become integrated, you know she was one of very few white Virginians who you know very publicly at a set of um, state hearings said, you know, we need immediate integration. There is that certain honesty and persistence that she shows, and Martin Luther King recognized that. So in the letter from Birmingham jail in 1963, he criticizes white moderates for being, you know, too moderate, too gradualist, not willing to, to, you know, go the distance with the civil rights movement. And he gives a few exceptions, um, and Sarah Patton Boyle is one of those exceptions. Part of what she explains is just how shaped people were, how hardened in their attitudes people were, attitudes and hearts by the Jim Crow era. Yeah. So as I look back on her story now from the point of view of 2019, I'm, I'm sort of back to the, the thing that initially drew me to it, which is, you know, in the, in the language of 2019, we all want to be woke, right? And she, she gives us a story about how somebody became woke and the work that it took to, to make that really real. She, she has wonderful metaphors, one of which I like is she talks about how, you know, back in the old days when women wore corsets, their backs would hurt if they left off their corsets. She says the, the patterns and the rules of behavior of the Jim Crow South are like those corsets that you, you can't leave off. Jennifer Ritterhouse is a professor of history and art history at George Mason University. She edited a new edition of Sarah Patton Boyle's autobiography, The Desegregated Heart, a Virginian stand in a time of transition. Next, how African-American communities maintain dignity and power during segregated Virginia. Dr. Jody Allen is a professor of history at the College of William and Mary. Her book in progress is called Roses in December, Black Life in Hanover County, Virginia, during the era of disenfranchisement. Jody, were you surprised by how well people could live during those decades of repressive laws? I wasn't really surprised because growing up black in Virginia, Um, being raised by people who had to work very hard, who had worked against Jim Crow all of their lives. I knew what Black people were capable of. During slavery, you had whites who suggested that Blacks would not be able to survive without having a master and a mistress guide them. And one of the things I learned um, through this work in Hanover County is that they did indeed thrive. They did very well. They did not need anyone to tell them what to do. And despite the uh, restrictions of segregation, they built homes, they built schools, they educated their children, they worked for pay, they built their own churches, they finally had the opportunity to read the Bible for themselves, so not through the interpretation of the master or the mistress. So they thrived. They built communities, and in many ways, they lived parallel lives to those of the white community. You know, they did not depend on the guidance of whites. Do you think whites were surprised in that region when the Civil War ended that African Americans were doing okay on their own? 
I think they were. When black men had the opportunity to vote for the delegates to the 1868 Constitutional Convention, only three black men voted for the white delegates. And whites were very surprised by that. Can you give me a window into the lives of some of the black residents of Hanover that you studied that Mm -hmm. show how they were able to sort of enjoy freedom, family, and work in spite of restrictions Mm -hmm. like this? They understood what they wanted freedom to look like. They saw education as very important because they saw that as a way out, a way around the um, restrictions of Jim Crow. The black school year was shorter than the white school year. And if black parents wanted another month or two for their children, they had to raise the money to pay the teachers. But they did. And teachers made the sacrifice sometimes of sleeping in the rooms with the kids or sleeping in a common room somewhere. So, But again, those were things that they were willing to do to get to where they knew they wanted to be. Give me examples of some of the Black entrepreneurs in Hanover County near the turn of the century. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very interesting group. There was a, a, a man who owned a barbershop, and he catered to white men. But at the same time, he also served the Black community. He built a hotel for Blacks who were traveling because there there weren't a lot of places for people to travel through Hanover and have a place, a safe place to stay. Um, there was another black man um, who owned his own cleaning and pressing business. He also had white clientele, but he also started a marching band. And there was a section of the white newspaper called Our Colored Friends. Blacks were the people who actually filled this column. They describe these energetic young colored men of our town. And this was a time that they had marched through um, town at Thanksgiving in what were described as spotless uniforms. The writer indeed said, the best part of this band is that their uniforms and instruments are all paid for. You write that the same is true for these African-American families through the civil rights era that had been true back then, that they were seen as maybe quiet, not participating particularly Mm -hmm. in the marches and the sit-ins and the more public protests, Mm -hmm. but they did carry their strength more quietly. It doesn't appear from my research that there were a a lot of people who were active in the marches or what have you, although I did meet some who had participated in the March on Washington. Um, But they they their protest was was daily. It was active. They accepted the idea that success was the best revenge. They built their own community. And while they did have to interact with whites, quite often they interacted with whites as business people. There was one business in particular, a bakery, and apparently everyone had him do their wedding cakes. And he was deceased by the time I was interviewing these people. But when they talked about Lightfoot's Bakery, black and white, they talk about just how delicious Um, his bakery was. And so they were able to make use of the white community in many ways. When you decided to look into the lives of these people in Hanover County, you said it was largely because you're living there now Mm -hmm. and you wanted to get to know them, but you also saw in them 
something familiar in your own family. Mm-hmm. I think just the the tenacity, the willingness to work hard, the understanding that there were limitations, but not allowing those limitations to control your lives. Part of my family, anyway, I come from sharecroppers. Uh, my grandfather was illiterate, and he did not understand the importance initially of educating his daughters. He kind of believed that, well, they're going to get married and have kids. And so my mom, who was the oldest, did not get to go to college. And he apologized to her later in life because he realized how hard she had to work. Much of what I found in my research in Hanover did not surprise me because I had grown up with these people who, in spite of their circumstances, you know, I I, I realize now as an adult that there were um, ladies in my church who every Sunday had on these beautiful outfits and what I call church lady hats, and they were just stunning. And it didn't occur to me at the time, but as an adult looking back, I know that most of these women were domestics. But I also know that most of them, as my my own grandmothers, refused to wear their uniforms in public. You know, they would go to the house, change into a uniform, but before they got back to the bus stop, they had changed out of their uniforms. And And there's a certain dignity in that to me. Um, And I found this to be true in Hanover, people who saw themselves, regardless of how they might have been perceived by white people, who saw themselves as dignified people and who had roles, leadership roles in their churches, in their fraternal organizations, in the black schools. And they were making sure that the next generation could do better. And I think often about the fact that, you know, my grandfather could not read or write. My um, grandmother had a third grade education, but she had taught herself to read. And I think about the fact that I have a PhD. We were kind of imbued with this notion that you have to work hard and working hard is good. And this is what you, this is what we want for you. We didn't, we may not have gotten it, but we want this for you. Dr. Jody Allen is a professor of history at the College of William and Mary. Her book in progress is Roses in December, Black Life in Hanover County, Virginia, during the era of disenfranchisement. We closed the show in Danville, Virginia. Danville was the site of a bloody riot in the late 1800s, sparked by whites who feared black voting power. But despite the repression, Danville's African-American community remained strong. Camilla Williams was born in Danville in 1919. She was the first African-American to receive a regular contract with a major American opera company. In 1954, Camilla Williams became the first black artist to sing a major role with the Virginia State Opera, and she traveled the world as a recitalist. Camilla Williams 
It's a good example of the process of how a diamond is created. You know, you have this piece of coal, and under pressure comes this brilliant diamond. Dr. Ethel Houghton is an associate professor of music at Virginia State University. That's where Camilla Williams graduated in 1941 with a degree in music. Dr. Houghton says Williams went on to take part in the civil rights movement back home, particularly in Danville. And her voice became part of civil rights history in 1963 when she was asked to sing at a massive protest for civil and economic rights of African Americans. She was scheduled to sing for the March on Washington in 1963. She was supposed to sing, Oh, What a Beautiful City. But at the last minute, she was called on to sing the national anthem. Um, Marian Anderson was scheduled to sing that, but she was stuck in traffic. And Camilla Williams said she heard her name called three times to, to sing the national anthem, and she ran up to the top of the stage, caught her breath, and, and sang. To present to you to sing the national anthem, Miss Camilla Williams. Camilla Williams died in 2012. Producer Kelly Libby brings us a story made from archival audio recordings of Williams and her performances. My story is a life story. My father worked for Dr. Robinson. He was a Jewish doctor. And he was a wonderful doctor. And you know, all my life, I have known beautiful china, beautiful silver, because when I would go to see them, I would see everything they had. And you know, that in itself is another culture. So I grew up seeing beautiful things. And I was a member of Calvary Baptist Church. And Reverend Good was a great preacher. And I joined church when I was nine years old so I could sing in the junior choir. And once Sunday morning in Sunday school, I shall never forget this as long as I live, I sang Come Unto Him, and Miss Cowan played for me. And after I finished singing, Reverend Good got up and said, Today we heard a voice that will be heard around the world. I 
will never forget that as long as I live. And it came to pass. I tell you, I went to Avery College with the high school to sing. And let me tell you, Miss Leah Lowe was the conductor of the choir. And there had been a big lynching. And when we sang City Called Heaven, she put that picture in the front of the whole choir. So there were some good people. You know what I mean? People with hearts of gold that saw you. I, I didn't know what really prejudice was in Danville because I was sort of a gifted child that the people took to. And those that didn't accept me as I was, Mama made me love folks just the same. You understand? Now let me tell you about Madame Butterfly. I had to learn that opera in two months. I'd only seen one opera. And when I stepped on stage, I don't know anything that happened. I cannot tell you. It was as though I was not there. And I have traveled on every continent. I didn't get to Russia and India. But I can tell you there's no other country in the world like America. It, to me, is the best country that you can live in. But one lady my mama used to help. I was, had done Madame Butterfly and God was blessing me. And this lady said to Mama, well, Fanny, you know, Camilla always knew her place. And Mama said, well, what was the place? <laughs> I had all kinds of things thrown at me. But it did not disturb my thinking of what my mama taught me. I grew up knowing that people can be real human beings, no matter what your color is. And so I grew up with love. It hasn't been an easy life to withstand some of the blocks that have been put in your path because you either overcome them. And when you get your mind set right, you can endure everything that people throw at you. If you have faith in God and faith in yourself, you can survive. My life is a miracle. Special thanks to the Friends of Camilla Williams in Danville, Virginia, who provided our producer with the oral history recording you just heard.
and the Chad Martin of History United. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. From Virginia Humanities, I'm Sarah McConnell. During the period of legal segregation in the United States, African Americans struggled to acquire their own property. One surprising place where they could find land for sale, the oceanfront. Andrew Carl is a professor of history at the University of Virginia, who's written two books about race, property, and the United States coastline, Andrew, a hundred years ago, African Americans owned a lot more beachfront property in the South than they do today. How did they come to acquire it? Were these former people who'd been enslaved, who are now living and owning the properties that had once been plantations? In some instances, yes. Uh, up and down the South Carolina Sea Islands and Georgia Sea Islands, these were lands that were abandoned by planters um, following the Union invasion during Civil War. Some of those properties were sold off to freedmen and women. In other areas of the coastal South, in the decades that followed, African Americans began to slowly acquire um, hundreds and hundreds of acres. They were not really conducive to large-scale agricultural production. They were very remote. And so an African American who was seeking to sort of gain a measure of, of autonomy and freedom in this sort of Jim Crow South um, would seek out this type of um, area f- to you know, become an independent landowner. So after World War II, we see an explosion of beach and oceanfront resorts by both white property owners and black property owners. Yeah, I mean, we're still, you know, keep in mind, this is still a time where segregation was the law of the land. African-Americans who themselves are excluded from uh, beaches, parks, playgrounds, swimming pools, are seeking to develop their own spaces where families can retreat to during the summer. Was it mostly those poor farming families that turned their own properties into resorts enjoyed by black families? Or was it black entrepreneurs that tended to come buy that property up and create the resort? It was both. And sometimes farming families became entrepreneurs. In some instances, it was um, black capitalists who sought to acquire lands that were um, unused or available and uh, began to build up beach resorts. In some instances, you had um, white capitalists who were um, seeking to build up resorts that catered to an African-American public. Are we mostly talking about a 20-year stretch between the end of World War II and the beginning of the Civil Rights Movement? Yeah, I mean, it's really, you know, following the 1964 Civil Rights Act that, you know, desegregated public accommodations throughout the South, many of these black beach resorts struggled um, in the face of declining revenue um, for many African-American families who could now sort of vacation wherever um, their dollars would allow. Um, they, um, you know, really, you know, these places really struggled to continue to sort of um, remain viable. And, and in some instances, many questioned whether they should remain viable, whether or not it was appropriate to continue to have sort of black beaches at a time where the goal was to sort of desegregate shorelines, period. So after the heyday of these African-American resorts in the South, how did people start to lose their lands to white buyers? 
Oh, there was a variety of different ways in which you saw um, these, you know, very valuable properties slip out of the hands of African-American owners. So many speculators would sort of prey on African-Americans who fell delinquent on their taxes and buy up um, acres at tax sales. So what happened to these former resort areas that were exclusively for black families and individuals? Were they destroyed were they left to languish? Yeah, I mean, that's what, where I sort of begin and end the book is with the stories of places that were once owned by African-Americans that today are gated communities, um, places that are now golf courses, where you would see no evidence if you were just sort of looking at it from afar that these were once um, places that had um, large numbers of African-Americans who would flock there each season and would really, um, you know, had a really important place in black life um, under segregation. But today, perhaps most tragically, are the instances where you see the descendants of the former landowners who are now working these lands, either as, you know, groundskeepers or as waiters in restaurants, working in service of um, other people's profits. Any big high-end beach resorts whose names we'd recognize, there were once something else? Yeah, I mean, I think the most sort of telling example is that of Hilton Head Island in South Carolina. Um, this was an area that was almost entirely um, populated by African Americans, um, where, you know, African American families who lived on Hilton Head Island would, could go an entire lifetime without ever seeing a white face. And today, this is, you know, sort of home to um, small and dwindling African American population. It's so interesting. Your newest book looks at the same sort of beach exclusivity, let alone racism, in the North. And you say in the South, whereas people might have had a color line and places where people could and could not go, in the North, it wasn't as explicit. Yeah. So in the North, you had privatized shorelines where you had um, private beach communities that were themselves oftentimes discriminatory in who could become members, but then had beaches that were then for members only. Or you had um, all-white communities that restricted access to their public beaches to residents only. Had they done this to limit access to African Americans, or just to say, we pay for these beaches, we keep the upkeep, we want to make sure that it's pretty much townsfolks? Well, that's what they said. Um, they certainly you know, said that the race had nothing to do with it. But it's undeniable that these exclusionary measures really proliferated during the very same years where African-American populations um, in cities in the North also grew. And it was frustrating to a lot of African-Americans who wanted to use these beaches. You write about the experience of Anne Petrie. She is the Harlem Renaissance novelist who said her most humiliating Jim Crow experience took place in Connecticut where she'd grown up. Yeah, yeah. She grew up in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, and she, as a young child, accompanied a, a group of white children on a picnic, a Sunday school picnic. You know, this Sunday school group that had gone there on numerous occasions without any incident, um, when um, this young African-American girl, Ann Petrie, um, accompanied them, suddenly that um, local ordinance was enforced. And um, the security guard who you know, worked the beach told them if they didn't leave, they would all be arrested. Um, and so they were forced to go back and have their um, picnic on the church lawn. And as she said, you know, we ate in clammy silence. This book, Free the Beaches, stars a crusade by a white man who lived in Hartford, Connecticut, to open these New England beaches to African-Americans. Tell me about him. 
Yeah, Ned Cole was um, a young um, white Irish Catholic college graduate who in 1964 quit his job in the insurance industry and founded a domestic um, peace corps, um, as he called it. It was called Revitalization Corps. His cause initially, and really throughout his life, was to sort of get uh, middle-class white families, you know, those people who are living in privilege, more involved in solving the problems of in cities that many of them had left behind when they had uh, moved to suburbs. He really sort of saw that these exclusionary measures that suburbs and wealthy white communities used stood in the way of a more integrated, equal, and caring society. He would go to the inner city. He would go to Harlem, and he would get groups of children, bus them to these private Connecticut and other beaches and sort of dare officials to keep them out. Yeah, the idea was, it's like, let's help find ways to get children who are living in these ghettoized, segregated neighborhoods out of the city during the summer. But when they first came down to the shoreline of Connecticut, seeking to find a place to, um, you know, where children could go and enjoy a day at the beach, they came to realize that there was nowhere they could go. So what did he do? He got angry. This really sort of rubbed him the wrong way. He kind of realized on an instinctual level that there was something very wrong about this. You know, for many Americans, we kind of see that the air, the water, you know, and the beaches belong to us. And um, yet these communities were sort of trying to keep the public away, or rather a certain segment of the public, away from something that um, was really kind of our, our common heritage. He would take groups of these children to the beaches, and they they would have what amounted really to a lunchroom sit-in, a lunch counter sit-in. Yeah, or you could call them a wait-in, if you will. Um, and, and you know, he would do very inventive strategies, such as you know, leading what could be called amphibious invasions of shorelines, because he would bring a sort of you know flotilla ashore, um, you know, with children, and they would sort of spend the afternoon playing um, on the um, wet sand portion of of these private country clubs and other exclusive beaches, um, calling attention to what he saw as the sort of racist um, motives behind these exclusionary um, ordinances. Was he able to change any of these laws? Was he able to open the beaches at all? Well, he wasn't directly able to, but a young law student um, in the mid-1990s who filed a lawsuit against the town of Greenwich over their resident-only beach ordinance was able to. Um, In 2001, the Connecticut Supreme Court um, ruled that these sort of um, resident-only beach ordinances were unconstitutional. That decision would not have been possible were it not for the activism that Ned Cole and others were waging in the 1970s. But I have been to beaches in Cape Cod or New England that seemed to require a lot of money and a pass and a gated access? Well, yes, and that's that's why the, the progress here has been, um, you know, it's been very qualified in the sense that, um, you know, even though uh, you can't have, say, resident, you know, beaches that are open to residents only, uh, many cities and towns have found other ways to make their shorelines exclusive, whether it be through um, having, you know, beach passes that are more expensive for non-residents versus residents, removing parking spaces so that, you know, they're sort of really only practically accessible to people who live near the shore. Many, many places have found other ways to get around these types of rulings. There are states in the nation that have very explicit policies that say all shorelines are open. Oregon is one of them. Hawaii beaches are by law and ancient Hawaiian tradition open to the public. 
Yeah, and in California, the entire you know California coastline is open to the public to ensure that you know billionaires who own property along the California coast can't sort of keep this beachfront to themselves. Andrew Carl teaches history and African American studies at the University of Virginia. A beach vacation wasn't the only option for black leisure seekers during segregation. Many all-black sports leagues and teams were formed during that period, and many of the nation's best athletes played for them. But with the onset of integration, many African-American sports leagues began to disappear. David Wiggins, a professor of history at George Mason University, is co-editor of the book Separate Games, African-American Sport, Behind the Walls of Segregation. Dave, you write in your book that the hardening of racial lines during the first half of the 20th century eliminated almost all of the African-Americans who'd played on white teams before then. You know, in the latter stages of the 19th century, uh, we had a a select number of African-American athletes who gained national and sometimes international reputations for their athletic exploits. 20, 25 years following the Civil War, a number of very, very talented and highly skilled African-American athletes. Like who? Isaac Murphy from Lexington, Kentucky, one of the great jockeys of all time, captured three Kentucky Derbies, the first jockey ever to win back-to-back Kentucky Derbies. Marshall Major Taylor, probably the greatest bicyclist of the latter stages of the 19th century. Uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker, who played Major League Baseball. Uh, In fact, one of the great myths of sport history is that Jackie Robinson was the first African-American to play Major League Baseball. That's not true. Uh, Moses Fleetwood Walker played with the Toledo Mud Hens in 1884, which was in the International League, and at that time had Major League status. Was he a household name in white households? No. No, he wasn't. Um, uh, but, but yes, he was the first African-American to play Major League Baseball. Jackie Robinson is really the first African-American to play modern Major League Baseball when he signed with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1945. So was there a period where we had integration in sports, then segregation, then integration again? Yeah, that's, a, that's in essence what happens around the turn of the century. What happens is the select number of African-American athletes are in most cases eliminated from predominantly white organized sport with three major exceptions. African-American athletes would always be able to continue to, in a select degree, play in predominantly white college sport. They would always continue to be an integrated sport in the sport of boxing and typically allowed to play and participate in Olympic competition. So those are three kind of three major exceptions at the turn of the century. So what year and when did African-Americans start forming their own all-black organizations? Well, they, it's important to note that even when a select number of African-American athletes were realizing national and international attention in the latter stage of the 19th century, there were certainly still all-black teams and all-black leagues, even at that stage, latter stages of the 19th century. Baseball is the classic example. You had clubs in New Orleans and Savannah, Georgia, Charleston, South Carolina, uh, the Cuban Giants uh, are the most famous. Some people consider them the the first all-black baseball team. 
Traveling in, in the South was difficult for them. They had uh, difficulties oftentimes finding housing. They oftentimes would stay with black families who would feed them and put them up for a night or two, uh, and often, oftentimes played against white teams. So you're saying there were other sports that also organized into all-black leagues. Absolutely, and in, in virtually every sport. But baseball is the one that's been most written about. And I would contend it has to do with the fact that for, for a long, long period of time, baseball was our national pastime. Baseball had always been seen as the great leveler in society. The rhetoric had always been that baseball um, allowed everyone to participate regardless of race, creed, or color. And people, historians have, have said, you know, if you want to know something about American culture, you'll gain a greater understanding of baseball. What period of history is this? Many of these all-black parallel sports teams came out of the decade of the 1920s. You know, sport historians refer to the decade of the 1920s as the golden age of American sport. You know, you had, what, Babe Ruth playing for the New York Yankees and... um, Newt Rockney. Newt Rockney, the great coach uh, at Notre Dame. Red Grange, the galloping ghost from the University of Illinois. Uh, Jack Dempsey in boxing, Gene Tunney in boxing. Historically, black college and universities, many of them established athletic programs with highly skilled athletes and, you know, just phenomenal organizations, really. So if the 30s represented the heyday, what led to the dissolution of these teams eventually? Integration. Once Jackie Robinson... Uh, came up with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947, it wouldn't be too long that Negro League Baseball died out. Black fans certainly began to flock to Major League ballparks to watch those black athletes, those black players that had been signed by various clubs. And uh, Negro League Baseball did not survive too long after um, the integration of, of that sport. What, again, had necessitated having these separate leagues before integration came along? Well, they, they um, you know, African-American athletes were just finding it very, very difficult to engage in inter- integrated athletic contests. But it wasn't just social. They were not allowed. Yeah, in some cases, just not allowed. You know, Major League Baseball is the classic example. Um, after Moses Fleetwood Walker had played for the Toledo Mudhens, there were no other African-Americans to play in Major League Baseball until Jackie Robinson was signed in 1945 and ultimately came up and played with the Brooklyn Dodgers in 1947. And professional football serves as an interesting example of this, too. And, and African-Americans, a select number of African-Americans, were allowed to play in the NFL up until 1933. And then starting in 1933 until... 1946, there were no African-Americans in the National Football League. Because of rules that were passed? No, it wasn't because of rules necessarily that were passed. There was one man in particular that seemed to play a, a leading role in um, the segregation of, of the National Football League, and that was um, George Preston Marshall, the southern-born owner of the Washington Redskins, you know, had led this segregationist approach to the, to the National Football League. And not surprisingly, uh, the Washington Redskins would be the last NFL team to ever integrate. 
This was a um, gentleman's agreement among the owners that no more African-Americans would be allowed in the sport. And again, it wasn't rules, but at that point, it was competition. Yeah. People realized that if they wanted to compete, that, that they were going to have to try as best they could to recruit and sign the best athletes that they could, irrespective of race. I mean, it was gradually, it wasn't something that happened overnight, obviously. Uh, it, it took many years for this to take place. Uh, it's almost like two steps forward and one step back. Not every team would have an African-American on their roster until 1959. And that's when the Boston Red Sox signed an outfielder by the name of Pumpsy Green. And so that gives you an idea of just how long that process of integration was. It just took for, it seemingly took forever. And would you say the longer a team had held out from that, the more likely the culture at that team had been of we don't want to cross the racial barrier. It was deliberate. Right, right. And that's certainly what happened with the Redskins and George Preston Marshall. It's a, the team didn't really integrate, um, and he was, in essence, forced to. He certainly didn't want to integrate, and he held out for a long period of time. These first, these first African Americans that found their way into predominantly white organized professional sport were typically quite good. This initial wave of African Americans into Major League Baseball, many of them went on to be members of the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, New York, um, you know, including Willie Mays and Hank Aaron and athletes of that ilk. Uh, so these initial players were, ext- were, were extraordinarily gifted and talented. Can you see, from your vantage point of being steeped in this, vestiges of earlier America when our teams were segregated? Well, I think there's been a rise and fall of kind of racial and ethnic succession in sport. For example, you know, the first great boxers in this country in the mid to latter stages of the 19th century, they were of Irish descent. John L. Sullivan, John Heenan, John Morrissey, these kinds of folks. Gentleman Jim Corbett. And boxing is interesting to me because at certain times in our history, it seemingly there's been overrepresentation of certain racial and ethnic groups in the sport. In the early part of the 20th century, boxing was dominated at one point by Italian-Americans, then African-Americans, and then Latinos. It's a kind of striving. It's a kind of arc of we've arrived, we're struggling, we move up, we move over. Well, interestingly enough, one of my good friends at Purdue, his name is Randy Roberts, who's written, he's a prolific author. He's written a lot about boxing. And one of the things he always says, you know, Dave, if you want want to find out who the heavyweight champion of the world is, find out who is on the lowest rung of the socioeconomic ladder. Because I think you're exactly right. It is this striving. It's, It's trying to make a better life for oneself. Well, Dave Wiggins, thank you for sharing your insight with me today on With Good Reason. Thank you. It's been nice being here. David Wiggins is co-editor of Separate Games, African-American Sport Behind the Walls of Segregation. David is a professor of sport history at George Mason University. This episode is made possible in part by History United, a project of Virginia Humanities that encourages regional collaboration and building community trust through a greater understanding of our shared history. History United's work is made possible by a grant from the Danville Regional Foundation. 
Major support for With Good Reason is provided by the law firm of McGuire Woods and by the University of Virginia Health System, connecting doctors and patients through telemedicine to deliver high-quality care throughout Virginia, the U.S., and the world, uvahealth.com. With Good Reason is produced in Charlottesville by Virginia Humanities. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Elliot Majerzik, and Cass Adair. Jeannie Palin handles listener services. Special thanks this week to Kelly Libby. Some of the music in the episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening. <laughs>